Psalm 23, verse 4, if you would. Psalm 23, verse 4. Once upon a time, there was a rich king who had four wives. He loved the fourth wife the most. He adorned her with the best of everything. She was his favorite. But he also loved his third wife because she was attractive to him. So he gave her the most attention, the most time, and the most devotion. He loved his second wife because she was his confidant, his companion. But then there was his first wife. Now, she was the most loyal of all four. She made by far the greatest contributions to his life, but he really didn't love her all that much. And as time went by, he fit her in now and then, but the truth of the matter is she was on the margins most of his life. One day, he became gravely ill. So he summoned the fourth wife, and he said, I have always given you the finest. Will you help me now in my dying hour? And she said, forget it. I've been betraying you since the beginning. So he summoned his third wife, and he said, I gave you the most attention, the most time, the most devotion. Will you help me? And she said, I never helped you before. Why would I help you now? The second wife said, well, I'm awful busy, and there isn't much I can do for you anyway, but I will have a nice funeral for you when you die. So devastated, he thought of his first wife. You know, he remembered that he never really loved her that much, but she was always so faithful, maybe she would help him. Before he could summon her, he died, and it was too late. The fourth wife is our body. It gets the best of everything, yet it's betraying us even as I speak. The third wife is our possessions and pleasures. We give them the most attention, the most time, and the most devotion, and in the end, they don't help us one bit. The second wife is our family and friends. They may love us, but at the end, they can't really help us. And the first wife is our soul. And we dare not neglect it. We dare not put it behind other things. But that happens in our world today. So Jesus made an observation in his day that fits people in our day. In Matthew 9, 36, he said, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So we need the good shepherd to attend to our souls as described in this psalm. Now, while written in Hebrew poetry, to a certain extent, this psalm takes us through life sequentially. We need a good shepherd who leads us into green pastures, who leads us beside quiet waters, and who restores our soul. Today, we'll see how he takes us through dark valleys, even death, as he cares for our soul. So now next week is the end of this series, but each week we've been repeating eight important statements. I hope these statements stick in your mind. You have a soul. It is uniquely you. It was created by God. It is your most important possession. It will exist forever, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Therefore, it is of the utmost value. So let's read this verse about how the good shepherd cares for that soul in the most difficult of times. Verse 4 of Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. First, I want you to see this morning the reality of life's darkest valley. 
the reality of life's darkest valley. The phrase, the valley of the shadow of death, refers to difficult experiences in life, and the most difficult experience in life we face is death. Now that phrase, shadow of death, is used about 20 times in Scripture with slight variations depending on the version. But those references aren't poetic. They speak of death. The Puritan Thomas Boston wrote a little piece called Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. Referring to our bodies, he said, these materials are like gunpowder. A very small spark lighting on them will set them on fire and blow up the house. He said, the seed of a raisin or a hair in milk can choke men and the house of clay goes to dust. And he also said, if we consider the frame and structure of our bodies, and that death has as many doors to enter in by as the body has pores, we may justly reckon that life is more astonishing than death. Now, if that didn't cheer you up, nothing will. But we need to recognize that death comes easily. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there are 14 statements that start with, there is a time to. Solomon never says there is a time to live. He says there's a time to give birth and a time to die. And life goes about that fast. In Ecclesiastes 11.10, he said, Childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. And then suddenly, we're in our final years. And during that time, Boston said, The more we solace ourselves in any earthly enjoyment, the more bitterness we find in parting with it. So Moses wrote one psalm, it was Psalm 90, and he said, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Now, if you're not cheered up yet, I've got more to come. As we go through life, Boston said, the world is a false friend. He said this false friend leaves a man in times of greatest need and flees from him when he has the most need. He said, when you're lying on your deathbed, all your friends and relatives cannot rescue you, your substance cannot ransom you, nor procure for you a reprieve for one day, no, not for one hour. And, he said, the more you possess of this world's goods, your sorrow at death is likely to be the greater, for one may live more commodiously in a palace than in a cottage. Now, there is a reason I've spent the last few minutes on death. We have a stewardship with this brief life, and it is to prepare for the eternal state of our soul. Life is a time to prepare for death. Now, that statement can be easily misunderstood because we are to enjoy life. John 10.10 says, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Human life is God's precious gift. And the Bible's wisdom about life stands completely opposed to what the world and the flesh tell us. We're told YOLO, carpe diem, seize the day, live your best life now, live in the moment. But the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you, if you delight yourself in the Lord, the desires of your heart will be in accordance with God's word. Your greatest joys will be spiritual. But the Bible also says things like this. 
Eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. There's no guilt in enjoying life. And Psalm 1 says if we avoid evil in our life, we can be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields fruit in its season, which means it takes time. And it says, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So God bestowed upon us the gift of life meant to be cherished and enjoyed with a heart full of gratitude. We joyfully serve him like yesterday. We use our bodies as gospel delivery systems, and we enjoy our days under the sun. Randy Alcorn has a book entitled Happiness, just one word. It's the best book I know of about how to live our life for Jesus and enjoy doing it. And I really encourage you to get that book. It's called Happiness by Randy Alcorn. And I encourage you to read that because the truth is we don't do all that well in using our life to prepare our soul for death. Now, how so? Let's dig into this. One of the fundamental rules of biblical interpretation is this. If a concept is true in one location, it's true everywhere. If something holds true today, it was true centuries ago. In other words, biblical principles are transcultural and they're transchronological. For a significant number of people in the world, both now and throughout human history, life has been brutish, short, and very difficult. Their existence does not involve planning vacations or amassing possessions or dreaming of retirement. Those of you who went to Mexico saw that firsthand. Millions are born into poverty. Countless others are born, live, and die in enslavement. Millions have lived in terror and socialistic nightmares. I was talking with someone outside our church this week about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He wrote the book Gulag Archipelago. He was sent to a gulag for making a mildly critical comment about Stalin, and a neighbor went and ratted on him, so to speak. Think about people in those situations. Jesus' words that I came that they may have life and have it abundantly? No one in those circumstances would look at that verse and say that means something physical or material. They would view that as spiritual abundance because that's what it means. When the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, they would never interpret that in material terms. We have a gracious God who's placed us in a situation where we can experience blessings but we need to experience them in moderation. I want to give you three important considerations here, folks. Number one, as a general rule, we're engaged in too many secular pursuits that devour our soul. Now, some are wise. Some provide necessary rest and enjoyment. I was taught in seminary that it's important to develop a hobby to give your mind a rest from the rigors of ministry. So some pursuits are wise, they provide necessary rest and enjoyment, too many are foolish, and our soul becomes neglected, weakened, and atrophied. Number two, we involve our children in numerous secular activities which can undermine the formation and function of the family. Now I want to say that again. Children are involved in numerous secular activities, and too many will undermine the formation and function of the family. Some pursuits are beneficial. 
They're great. But without great caution, they can lead to a lack of family time, a diminished role for the church, and a neglected soul. Number three, we sometimes pursue legitimate desires in unhealthy or excessive ways. Fulfilling some desires is a blessing from God. Excessively filling desires is entering into destructive fleshly lust. When the Puritan Richard Baxter lay dying, he said to his friends, I can assure you that your whole life, be it ever so long, is little enough to prepare for death. Beware of this vain, deceitful world and the lust of the flesh. In the mid-1660s, there was a plague in London. It was caused by fleas from diseased rodents. Ugh. And it killed 15% of London's population. Thomas Brooks was a pastor then, and in the middle of that plague, he wrote a short book entitled, 20 Special Lessons You Are to Learn from the Rod. I won't share with you 20. I'll share with you just a few. Now, remember, the context of this is the possibility of imminent death. He said, number one, Observe the sin which your soul is most unwilling to leave and bid it an everlasting farewell. He said, don't wait until the rod of correction is at the door. Mortify that particular sin which the heart stands most strongly inclined to. Number two is a question. He said, what sin hinders you from living on the precious promises of God? Had you ever thought about that? I hadn't. What sin hinders you from living on the precious promises of God? And then number three, he said, What sin is your heart most apt to hide and cloak and cover over with the most specious and fair pretenses? In other words, what sin do you make excuses for? You might have found the answer to number one. I'll give you an example of that. In 1 Samuel, God ordered Saul to destroy every living thing among the Amalekites. He told Samuel that he completely obeyed that command, to which Samuel replied, What then is the bleeding of sheep that I hear? What sin do we make excuses for? And then number four, I'll paraphrase this. What is the sin in your life that everything else bows to? When this sin calls, you immediately respond, and everything else takes a back seat because this sin is paramount in your life. Now, I say all of this because it's necessary to prepare our souls for death. There's no second chance. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto all men to die once, and then comes the judgment. By the way, that verse rules out reincarnation. You die once, not many times. It partially rules out annihilationism. In other words, annihilation means, annihilationism means when the lost die, they cease to exist. If they cease to exist after they die, then how can there be a judgment? Now, some would say annihilationism happens after the judgment. That's a topic for another sermon. But it rules out reincarnation, it rules out annihilationism, and it rules out universalism. Universalism means everyone goes to heaven. If everyone goes to heaven, why is there a judgment? Now, at this point, this isn't necessarily a sermon that many people want to hear, but I know you love biblical truth, and I love you, so I'm duty-bound to preach this. We must prepare our soul for death according to God's word. 
And preparing your soul for death is something that God places in the heart of a person who's born again. He places an increasing desire to lose your life to save it, to take up the cross, to follow him. And we do that because it matters forever. A word to those of you who are younger, which many of you are younger than me, but let's say 40 or below. Your preparation now is more important than you think because as a person grows older, he or she becomes more set in their ways. If you're embedded in following Jesus now, you're more likely to be unmovable later. And if the winds of persecution or privation blow, when fleshly lusts come and wage war against your soul, you're far more likely not to look to the left or the right, but to keep straight ahead and keep your hands put to the plow. All of this leads up to the beauty of verse 4. David said when he, David, excuse me, David just said simply, he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. When you enter the valley of the shadow of death, you enter alone. No one can enter with you. Many enter at the same time, but no one can go into that valley with you. However, look again at the start of verse 4. This amazing good news can slip right by us. He says, even though. Those two words are going to negate the entire problem he's about to bring up. You're going to go through this valley someday. But even though you're going to go there, there is amazing good news. But before we get there, I want to clarify one thing. Verse 4 does not apply to a lost person. No unsaved person enters this valley. A lost person descends into everlasting darkness. Jude 13 calls it black darkness. Jesus calls it outer darkness. That's the fate of those who are not in Jesus. Only the saved go through this valley, and here's why. Notice that David, David doesn't say, I'm entering the valley of death. He says it's the valley of the shadow of death. So why is this only a believer's valley? Because for the believer, death is just a shadow. Shadows make it dark, but shadows can't hurt you. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a great Bible teacher. His first wife died when the children were young, and they were returning from the funeral with broken hearts, and he said a large moving band drove by their car, and its shadow cast itself into their car. And he said, kids, which would you rather happen, the shadow of the truck hit you or the truck itself? He said, what happened to your mother is the shadow of death has hit her, but she's alive with Jesus now and forevermore. So over 2,000 years ago, Jesus went through death. He conquered sin by satisfying God's righteous judgment as a sacrificial death for sinners. Then he rose from the dead. He destroyed the power of Satan who uses death as a weapon to bring fear into our lives. And Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of all this. And the Bible says those in Christ will also be made alive. And at the end of the age, death is thrown into the lake of fire. And never again, never again will any of God's people experience death. Death doesn't exist in the kingdom to come. 
In fact, if you're in Christ, you've already passed from death to life. So Christianity is not YOLO while you still have time. It means death has been defeated, and it's time for us to prepare our souls for death. And all of this also means that when death comes, you can face it calmly. David is not running through the valley with his hair on fire. He's walking. Notice verse 4. He fears no evil. As he walks through that valley, he knows nothing bad is going to happen to him other than the shadow of death. And death is just a bridge to being with Jesus. So you can face death calmly and you can face death confidently. Look again at verse 4. He said, I walk through the valley. Death is not a dead-end street. It's a passage. He's walking through. That means there's an entry, and that means there's also an exit. And while no person can walk with you through that valley, look again at verse 4. He said, you are with me. When death comes for the believer, Jesus is there to take you home. It's not the end. It's the start. D.L. Moody said, I hunted through all four Gospels trying to find one of Christ's funeral sermons, and I couldn't find any. He said he never preached a funeral sermon because when the dead heard his voice, they sprang to life. Now, that's the reality of life's darkest valley. Number two, reassurance for life's dark valleys. Again, that phrase, the valley of the shadow of death, refers ultimately to difficult experiences in life. So David said in verse 4, your rod comforts me. The shepherd would use the rod to beat brush to scare away snakes, and it was used to drive off predators. Philip Keller was a shepherd who wrote a book on this psalm, and he said one day he saw a snake on a rock ready to strike a sheep, and a young shepherd jumped up, he took his rod, and quickly killed that snake on the rock. And do you know what that sheep did? He didn't even notice. Saved from danger, saved from disaster, saved from death. He didn't even know what the shepherd did for him. The good shepherd cares for our souls in ways we undoubtedly don't even know. When the sheep would return to the sheepfold at night, each one would have to pass under his rod. That was the way the shepherd counted them. That would ensure that no sheep were missing. So no matter how obscure or unimportant you may feel today, or maybe you feel like you don't measure up to the standards of this ungodly world, and by the way, why would you want to measure up to that? But no matter how you feel about yourself, you're valuable to him. The sheep pass under the rod, so not one escapes his notice. And as they enter the sheepfold, he uses the rod to find burrs and parasites to see if there's a disease or a wound. In that way, he could apply a healing balm to every sheep. Yet he cared for the sheep with more than just a rod. Verse 4 says he had a staff. A shepherd would use the tip of the staff to gently guide the sheep into the right path, which was probably the path the sheep didn't want to take. And if the sheep was extremely stubborn... The crook of the staff would be wrapped around his neck, and if necessary, the shepherd would apply force to get him to go where he wanted him to go, and if the sheep still bucked him, he would lift him up off the ground by his neck and set him where he needed to go. The way you can say with David, his rod and his staff comfort me, is when you place yourself under that rod 
and you go where that staff wants you to go. So we got the reality of life's darkest valley, reassurance for life's darkest or dark valleys. Number three, our response to life's dark valleys. I want to give you just three. Number one is remember his presence. David said in verse 4 that that shepherd, that good shepherd, would be with him as he entered that valley. But friends, remember, he's always with a Christian. He's omnipresent. He's with everyone all the time. However, there's a difference between the lost and the saved. With lost people, he's around them. With the believers, he's inside of them. At Christmas, we trot out the word Emmanuel or Emmanuel. It's pronounced two different ways. Emmanuel means God with us. His presence is always with the believer, even when you go through a dark valley and you can't see him. So remember his presence. Number two, this is from experience too. Number two, relax in his protection. Relax in his protection. We can be so vulnerable in this life it has so many tragedies at this conference yesterday I was a panelist and so they kind of ask you to tell your life stories and and I answered some questions and it brought back some really painful days to mind it really did people have traumas at the end of it and I'm going to make this story short there was a pharmaceutical rep I'm talking to a woman that I've known for a long time because her daughter has a pediatric form of my disease. And this woman comes up and she's bawling her eyes out. And I didn't even, I mean, I didn't even have the whole story. And she's hugging me and hugging this woman. She has a terrible need in her life. I didn't even, all I could get, I got this little bit of a story and I said, I'm a pastor, I'll pray for you. And she's crying and said, please. If you want to pray for her, her name is Beth. People have pain and traumas. Every one of you have them. And while yesterday brought back some painful memories, it also generated great gratitude. It's amazing that I'm still here, but it's amazing that you're still here. God protects us like a good shepherd protects sheep. And you might say, yeah, but I know someone who died in an accident. I know someone who died of a disease, so God doesn't always protect us. Yes, he does. God always protects Christians, or Satan would kill every Christian instantly. The day of our death means God just lifts that temporal protection to bring us into his eternal presence where there's complete security. Satan can't kill you. Death is defeated. And someday you're going to be safely home. Be in his word and learn to relax about this matter of death. Prepare your soul well. And then number three, we've got remember his presence, relax in his protection. Number three, rely on his power. In John 11, Lazarus had been dead for four days. People were grieving. Jesus showed up and he cried out in a loud voice three very specific words. Lazarus come forth if he hadn't specified Lazarus graves all open the world all over the world would have opened people would have come from ponds and rivers and oceans from valleys and mesas and swamps and bogs maybe from the place your house was built on they'd come out and in your living room that is the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ he is not dead he is alive today and you can be assured that since he was raised you will be also.
J.C. Ryle said this, Death and judgment and eternity are not fancies but stern realities. Make time to think about them. Stand still and look them in the face. You will be obliged to make time to die whether you are prepared or not. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths in your word. Thank you that as a Christian goes through the valley of the shadow of death, that death is just a shadow. Thank you for the way you care for our soul and the way that you protect us. And I pray this morning for those who cannot honestly say, Jesus is my shepherd because they don't know you as Lord and Savior. And I pray that you would draw them to yourself right now. And for any person here who doesn't know you, they would recognize that not only is the Lord Jesus moving in their heart, not only is the Holy Spirit drawing them to God, but this whole group of people here desires to see you saved. We, we exist to see people saved. And so for anyone here, who's never trusted you, would you cause them to take that step from death to life, from unbelief to belief, and then encourage them to reach out to us so we can help them take the next steps in the Christian life. Thank you for saving our souls. Thank you for the way you shepherd us. And I pray for every person here for great blessing from you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is risen and alive today. Thank you that you're alive. I pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. Church, would you stand with us and sing?